Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast, our listeners on Talk Radio, WWDB, and our new listeners on WPEN, HD2, 97.5 FM. It's drive time on Tuesday for you. Today, we have Vincent Cravero. He is the ambassador of the Fuge and East Coast Events Group in studio. Then we will hear from the first of two authors, Danielle Davis. She wrote the Healthy Swaps Cookbook. And later, Edward Slingerland, who penned Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Chef Gene, we have a fantastic guest in studio. Let's introduce our guest. So for those of us in the Philadelphia area, those of you in the Philadelphia area, up in Bucks County, there is one of the most unique event venues you'll ever find. And in the very near future, there's a great possibility that there's going to be a microbrewery there as well. The venue is called The Fuge. It is actually three venues in one, the main room holding 11,000 square feet, two 37-foot video screens, and then there are two other venues on the property also, so you could have um, three events simultaneously going on. Our guest in-house today is Vince Cravero. He is the ambassador to the Fuge. More importantly, Vincent is the son of the visionary Sam Cravero, who bought what was a secret military installation, turned into research center, it was an ex-government facility, and turned it into an event center so that not only could the history of the Fuge be saved, the fact that the original astronauts spent time and trained there, the Mercury 7, but everything that goes with it could be saved. But also as an events venue, you know, tens of thousands of people a year get to see that. <laughs> so welcome, Vince. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Vince, if I'm correct, uh, it was about 14 years ago that yes. your father purchased uh what was a, a, a very large office building and research center. He, uh, I, I know the story from him that he couldn't figure out the square footage because he didn't see the main room at first. And he just saw the office area and they finally opened the doors and he sees this big yep. thing. And his quote was, I don't know what it is, but I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's walking through the building and, uh, you know, they're going through the huge, uh, the huge venue is actually on the second floor where the centrifuge is housed and they're walking around uh it's a four floor building sixty-five thousand square feet he's walking around he's like man sixty-five thousand square feet i don't i don't see it yet you know where where is it and they're like oh they're on the second floor and, and then you know right over here here's the centrifuge and he's like what the centrifuge <laughs> like what is that and um yeah i opened it up and uh there was the 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 world's largest centrifuge in bucks county we had no idea not a clue well and, and that being, it, it is the world's largest human centrifuge ever built. The reason, One of the reasons it's built in Bucks County, one, this was a secret military installation. Two, it is such an enormous General Electric 
direct current motor that they have that powers this. That look at you is, doing your research. I already is, know what you're going to say. I know, right? It is actually <laughs> bolted down to the bedrock of the earth yep. because in Bucks County, our bedrock is fairly shallow. So they actually had to attach it to the bedrock of the earth to make sure that this thing didn't just pull up and spin into the, into the sky. The, the, I, I'm I, sorry, but the amount, I mean, just think about it. The amount of like ingenuity that they had to think of, they picked the warmester out of all the places in the whole you know, United States just because of that fact. I mean, that is just like down to the T. It's crazy, right? I, w- I wonder if there was some cocktail hours discussing ah. the, the location. <laughs> Well, one of the best things about the Fuge is that they have, um, because it was a top-secret military installation for many years and it was very big, there was an airfield, there was a lot of stuff associated with it, there, they have an alumni event several times a year that Sam uh, opens up the facility for and lets them come in and do this meeting of the people that are retired from there. And you want to talk about the stories. I'll tell you about the stories of testing cameras with Playboy centerfolds and things like that. But, oh, tell uh, me. Tell uh, me about uh, the stories. Uh, so... <laughs> So, Vince, what was it like being, you know, a, a teenager walking in and saying, hey, you know, this is what we just bought and and where it went from there to what it is now? I, I happened to be there Saturday. State of the art laser light show, state <laughs> of the art yep. lighting, incredible acoustics, three venues <laughs> and then so much more. You know why you want to have your bachelorette or your bachelor party at a escape room, there's one there. Vince, okay. thank you for bringing your guests. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> right. Tell us about what that was like. So yeah, it was 2007. I was uh, a 17-year-old punk kid, and uh, yeah, we got my dad bought this 65,000 square foot building. So there was a lot of just like roaming around, like where are we gonna go into next? And yeah, there was all this history, and um, you know when he first got it. First and foremost for office spaces. So he had his own company, um, which was a security company, did like alarm systems, fire systems and all that. He wanted to have his office there and then remodel it and um, give other people opportunities to have office space there. That was the first thing. Obviously, he knew the centrifuge was there, just really didn't know what we were going to do with it. Um, And then some years goes by and, you know, we... Just the, the centrifuge was kind of, it was there. And we didn't know what to do with it. And then uh, the flyers were in the Stanley Cup, 2010. And um, we were thinking, hey, wouldn't it be fun to have a party up in that centrifuge area? <laughs> so, yeah. So what happened was uh, we got some pieces of drywall, put it up on the wall. And it was just literally like the biggest living room you've ever seen. There was couches everywhere. Um, we projected the flyers on um you know where the drywall was and we made it about 40 square um 40 foot movie screen and yeah we were like wow this is just really cool environment wouldn't it be cool to do have events here and that's sort of like where the idea um started um and then that was 2010 uh we were kind of going between names uh we picked fuge as a play on centrifuge um and it kind of like, you know, our first official event, Gene was there, 2012, the Greater Philadelphia Media Bridal Show. The biggest bride, I'm in the, I'm in, you know, the wedding business, the biggest bridal show I've ever been a part of. I mean, there was like a thousand people there. And that was, you know, to kick off the Fuge. Uh, that was the first event we had. And, um, you know, really haven't turned back since. I'm 
just curious. I mean, I know that it's it's probably shut down. It wouldn't, you know, circulate the sure. room at this point. Yeah. But, you know, prior to it becoming an event space, did you guys take a ride on it? No, we never did. But I will tell you, so uh, to get a little bit of the history of the building, right, it is the Johnsville Naval Air Base. That is where, which right now is basically the complex in which the centrifuge building is in. So um, that was an active naval air base until 1996. Uh, and then after that, um, the they had to leave and move. Um, they left and move. Um, and it was kind of donated to the city of Warminster, or the township, I should say. And a private investor came in and um, actually rented out that centrifuge to Penn State until 2005. Now, if you look, if you go, if you have a chance to go there, all of this is analog, super duper like, you know, probably has more, our cell phones probably have more technology than this thing. And there were people that knew what to do, <clears throat> knew how to turn it on, and it, it was functioning until 2005 um, by Penn State. There was actually a video on YouTube that I posted of um, somebody actually, you were actually allowed to be in there. Yeah. Um, and it would go around and it was like super loud and, um, yeah, it was still functioning until 2005. It was abandoned for two years uh, when my dad bought it. And we just really didn't have not only the means, but, you know, we just didn't really um, see much use of actually turning it on. <laughs> Although I, I would say if you ever wanted to, like, make an impact of, like, would you like your drink shaken or stirred? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whoosh, what, one, one rotation. There you go. You're good to go. Yeah. Zero to like 165 in like, in like seven, seven seconds. seconds right? Yeah. And that's... then a dead stop in like two. Yeah. So, yeah. It, all the while, the little globe you're sitting in will turn 360 degrees in any direction as you're spinning around the room. With so, that. so, really, don't drink or eat before getting into this. It's thing. probably recommended. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the, the great stories about the Fuge is um, a Scott Carpenter story. Who, yes. you know, The original seven trained there. So, you know, NASA sent them to the Fuge. And one of the great stories, Scott Carpenter actually came back to visit and spent some time there. And it was really a great pleasure to have him. But told a story. He was the first person to hit, what, 10 G? First American to do 10 Gs. I believe so. And there was a Russian who did it right before that, like two weeks before. And the video was of the Russian getting out of the centrifuge after 10 Gs, and his helmet comes off, and he's vomiting, and he was just <laughs> in really bad shape. And so Scott Carpenter, they take him up to 10 Gs. They stop. He gets out of the centrifuge. He puts his arm up on the wall. Big smile. They do a couple seconds of video. You know, they get some pictures, everything like that. They stop all that. He said, I hit the ground. I started vomiting. I wet myself. I was a mess. <laughs> yeah. He says, but no way the Russians were going to no, see that. No way. I mean, so. Talk about American heroes, those guys. They absolutely oh were. I, you know, one of the, the great things when Scott Carpenter came out, he gets out of the vehicle and your dad was there. And he looks yeah. up at the building and his quote was, oh, God, I remember now. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it was not a place that they came for a lot of fun. I mean, it was a tough, tough, you know, situation to be put in that centrifuge, but it is now the focal point of the main room. And, and you know, while the history is great, you can go, you know, let's talk about the events that this place holds. Proms, mitzvahs out of this world mitzvahs. Crazy mitzvahs. Weddings, bride and groom sitting for their wedding photos in the centrifuge. You know, just an absolute, you know, great thing. Two... <laughs> 
37-foot video screen. I have to correct you. It's three. <laughs> there is three. There's one behind the wall. There is there is one behind the curtain. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You're you're underselling us here. Yeah. If, that's if, the Eagles, if the Eagles ever make it back into the Super Bowl, can we have like a massive like viewing party? Now, yeah, we've had Super Bowl parties. Now it was very private. I don't know. There's licensing and all mm. that, but we've had private Super Bowl parties. Lots of fun. Yeah, <laughs> lots of fun. You know, very cool. So there's a very interesting or interesting dynamic about the feuds too. The top floor of the feuds, the uh, wedding venue. I think it's really. A beautiful wedding venue is yes. called the studio. Can you tell us a little bit about how the studio came about? What the tie to the studio is, and and sure, what what's the influence of a Grammy? Yeah, so um, actually, um, when that first event happened, uh, that bridal show, I was saying, um, at that same time, my uncle is actually a sound engineer, and around 2012, he actually won a Grammy for best spoken album, all about bubble. Sorry. All about bullies, big and small, and he was—he won an, a Grammy, and his studio uh, for the longest time was on the third floor, and that whole floor was dedicated to the arts. Hmm. We have him and his sound engineer room. Uh, we have a couple web designers. Um, in 2010, we're talking about. We had podcasters in there. Not really. It wasn't really huge then. Now, like how it is today, but your podcasters in there, a drummer, just like very cool, dedicated to the arts. Um, so what happened was my dad relocated a lot of these people and we actually tore it all down and we call it the studio because my uncle uh, and he's, his studio is actually still up there. And that's how I got its name. It's a very um, industrial kind of chic um, design. Um, yeah. And it was, um, it's, it's, you know, the lights look great um, and it looks, it's an amazing venue. It it truly is a beautiful wedding venue. It's very unique, and you know, capacity one fifty, one sixty kind of thing is is a beautiful number for a lot of weddings. Unlike the eleven thousand square foot room <laughs> downstairs, where you could do a thousand. Yeah. Um. And then you have one more spot. You have the the lab. Tell us a little bit about the lab. So the lab that was that was always a project from the beginning. Uh, it had a bunch of names. Um, because it was always called the demo wing. We kind of just one day did demo, demolition, and then a couple of years go by, and it was <laughs> just called the demo wing because we just put it. You know, that was it. But uh, originally it was a laboratory. Um, that was you know within the whole building. Um, so we, one day kind of cleaned it all up, got it all together and, uh, we call it the lab. It's, it's a very, um, you know, it's great for sweet 16s, um, for, it can be a breakout room for, um, you know, wedding ceremonies, uh, intimate meetings, um, and all of the three venues, uh, when you go there, um, always, you know, has a little bit of lighting, um, attached to it, um, you know, sound, everything's kind of in mind. So like when you kind of go in, um, the audio video lighting is always, um, in the mindset of, uh, I guess you can still call the huge product. So if it's called, if that particular, um, area is called the lab, is it themed the decor? Is it themed that way? Or is it just got that nickname? No. So there is actually, um, there's a, you walk in and yes, there was a little bit of a theme. We got this really big industrial door that was there. Um, and we have a little room that kind of ha housed, um, you know, some refrigeration for the labs and that's where the bar is. Um, so yeah, there is definitely some elements of the lab. Each, each venue, uh, as far as like the lab and the studio go, you know, in the studio, there's a piano. 
Um, and there are like um, the carpet has like little musical notes. So yeah, it's definitely there are themes. And then you know the fuge room is just like this big like the centrifuge is the first and foremost thing you see. So what I love too is you know your father, you you know Ralph, <laughs> Jimmy, everybody have you know contributed ideas to where when you're in the centrifuge, we needed a place to put the bars. Well, in the middle of the centrifuge, there's a giant motor room that spun the centrifuge. So, you know, you go in, you cut out some holes in the concrete wall, and now you have this beautiful bar that you're standing, you know, behind it. Behind you is the motor from, you know, it cool. goes down. So, you know, really, the history of the building is incorporated. The fact that there's an early space flight suit, you know, a Mach 1 that's there, the, you know, contour cushions, the blue shoe, and, and if anybody, you know, uh, is familiar with actually the, the first version of a blue shoe is where the device that they created to go to the most extreme G-forces ever. That was done in that building. Somebody went... 31.25 G-forces. Yeah, 31.25 G-forces. So just so you know, um, the average person, um, you know, a pilot is doing 10 at a really high bank curve, you know, if he's if he's doing something like that. So 31 is not something anybody ever ex- sees. Going into space flight, you don't hit 31 Gs. But they didn't know that. Right. You know, back then, they, 40 They just G- wanted to be pre- yeah, prepared. Yeah, the centrifuge could go up to 40 G-forces. <laughs> that was, like, its max. Um, and, uh, yeah, the record is 31.25 in that uh, blue shoe, which is just... I mean, I think if you go on a roller coaster, what is that, like, two? Yeah, two, two. <laughs> and people get and sick people, on that, Yeah, right? and people are like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> What I love about the blue shoe or the shoe that's there that, you know, it's literally some tin that's kind of, you know, riveted and snapped together and you laid in it and they filled it with water because they found out that water absorbed G-forces and you were able to do that. And they discovered that because they also had an animal wing there that we don't want to talk about too much. <laughs> but uh, but it was there. I feel like whoever that was, that animal was, who, who, whatever that animal was, uh, may may that animal rest in peace. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, you saw if you look at the early days of space flight, the chimpanzees and such that went up. A lot of them came through the fuge. Yeah, they, you know, that's. You know, and, and and you know working at that building for so long i can't tell you how many people have come in in their in their 60s 70s and even 80s I'm like you know i used to work here you know Aww. and super nice guys i walk them around and you know they they were ready for volunteers these people and they're like i rode in it like you know i rode in it all the time you know or they wanted me to go in i said no you know like they were just like they wanted anybody to go in just to test it out, see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> like any any Joe Schmo off the street? Not Joe Schmo. These were people that were on the airbase. So these were these were oh, workers, okay. and no, no, it was actually like Gene was saying. It was, it was very top secret when you were there um, back in its operation. It was uh, everything was very top secret. There was, um, uh, you know, GPS was developed there. Um, a lot of things that we take advantage of today, like transitional lenses, all sorts of very cool stuff that um, in that time was like government, you know, you know, state of the art stuff we take advantage of today. That was a lot of that was developed at the Johnsville Naval Air Base. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, I mean, I know that you hold obviously you hold events from proms to weddings and, you know, everything in between. But it sounds like just between the history of everything i know right (laughs) between the history of everything and you know with the the 
interesting aspects of every level that's at your uh, at the Fuge. Do people like myself, who's a photographer, come out and say, hey, you know, can I do a photo shoot? Oh, yes. All the time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I believe we're at the, the Beasley Media Station. I'm pretty sure President Steve did a few things, um, uh, a few things here. Uh, yeah, definitely. People reach out um, and, and want to take, you know, photos. And we also have like um, a lady. Her name is Eleanor. She's the sweetest lady. And she helps preserve um, as much as she can of like the fuge and, and kind of document everything. And, uh, yeah, she has people come in and, and take photos and, and just make sure that everything is, you know, well documented. And the great thing about the Fuge is that we are, like Gene uh, mentioned in the beginning, we're really making it aware of, you know, to the public. Like I said, when I was 17, I lived in Bucks County my entire life, and I had no idea about this um, centrifuge. Now, you know, I can go somewhere and, you know, we have brought awareness to this historical site in Bucks County by, you know, having events there and people like be like, oh, yeah, the Fuge, I know that place. But before then, nobody really knew about it. And, you know, it was kind of a shame because it is it is, um, you know, a national, you know, you know, gem. <laughs> well, d that actually begs the, the question. Do you also do? I mean, I know that you said that if somebody comes up to you and said, I used to work <laughs> here, you, you've given them like little tours. Yeah. But, you know, what about, you know, a class like a school of uh, children who the teacher is like, hey, let's have a field trip and learn about some of the history. Yeah. Have you had some of that? That's that's kind of like touching on my wife's a teacher. So, um, you know, yes, there has been times where, you know, it, maybe a class will come up and, and um, you know, have been interested. Um, it does, it's far and very few between. Um, and, you know, the tour, it, it's done by either Eleanor or, or my dad. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, every once in a while it might happen. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it would be the greatest place to do a Halloween haunted house kind of theme. Oh, very cool. Okay, have you gone through when you're all the way up top and yeah. getting down into – into the observation dome and things like that would be a great Halloween. But we have had enough parties there that were close to Halloween parties yeah. and, and do things like that. What's next in the world for the Fuge? What, what have you got coming up? Anything exciting? Uh, so the Fuge, you know, we are always improving. My dad is always um, uh, doing improvements to the building. Right now uh, we're in talks of uh, starting a brewery uh, starting in the fall. Uh, and it's going to be really exciting, uh, restaurant kind of feel too, as well. And, uh, we're going to try to, uh, bring back like live entertainment too. Uh, we're going to be huge into, uh, you know, bands and all, all sorts of stuff like that. So. Well, you know, one, one of the things that we haven't talked about is the absolutely, we talked about the lighting. We talked about the sound. I mean, the lighting is second to none. There's no venue in this region no. that has lighting like the fuge from a laser light show that's possible <laughs> to just the led lights that go around and the timing and everything like that but the food you know great quality food all done in-house the newest aspect your uncle jimmy who went from being a sound engineer <sighs> to being a outstanding ice cream producer very good i happened to be over there saturday i had a little bit um of the strawberry and I had a little bit of the creamsicle, I was blown away. And, and obviously you could go online at the Fuge and order some ahead of time to purchase if you wish. Mm. He'll make that for you. But, you know, the food quality is just really, really outstanding. You know, having a chef in house, but also making all your own ice creams. Nobody does that today. Yeah. 
and especially at that, you know, for parties of a thousand, things like that. So, you know, really a big shout out to, you know, Sam is a visionary to what's going to happen with microbrewery and a restaurant and, and things like that. Um, what is the strangest thing that you found while you were at the feed? <laughs> wow, you should have. <laughs> I don't even. The strangest thing, huh? <laughs> you should have prefaced that question before. Cause I, um, oh, my God. I mean, see, I go back to the fact that we found a space flight suit in the I mean, trunk in the basement that was like. But I didn't find that. But yes, no, but, that was pretty. You know, that, so so yeah, we did find that space suit in the in the crawl space. Right. Um. And uh. Oh, also the 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 molds. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the astronaut molds that um. So when they found out, not only in the beginning, what Gene said, uh, water would absorb g forces. They also found out that mo- the mold of your body, uh, if you had a molded seat you could absorb more G-forces. And uh, yes, there was, um, I'd say that's a pretty awesome find. Um, and the cool thing about that is you can actually find the astronauts, pictures of the astronauts, like looking at their own molds. And that was at the Johnsville Centrifuge. So yeah, between the molds and the spacesuit, those are two pretty big ones. So do you, did you match up the molds of the seats? <laughs> so when, you know, the, the, when the government left in 96, they took a lot, all the good stuff. But they left us, uh, I think... I think the the one that we have on display was a scientist. You have, uh, you have Deke Slayton's there. Deke as well. Slayton's, yeah, but that one's slowly deteriorating. Yeah, that's slowly deteriorating. But Deke Slayton's is there. I remember yes. seeing that. So, one of the the other unique things that happened during COVID, I, I give you guys so much credit yeah. for that, is that you know, proms couldn't take place indoors. We're, we're down in COVID, you know, we're down in this situation where you can't have proms and your dad was visionary enough to do what? So what he did is he built a, um, outdoor structure. Now this wasn't, this isn't a tent, you know, cause the biggest thing was like a tent. Um, you know, you had a lot of poles in the middle and, and the kids really couldn't dance that much. And it was kind of restraining. It was, it's literally like an outdoor structure and, uh, kind of saved a bunch of proms. Um, not only did he do proms where the school was involved, but also uh, where the parents kind of took over. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of proms this year that otherwise they wouldn't have had if uh, they didn't have it at the Fuge. Um, and, um, yeah, it was great. Um, so wh- why don't you let us know how to find the Fuge sure. on social media? Yeah, so all their socials are on their website, www.rentthefuge.com. So, Vince, before we let you go, one other thing. You grew up at the Fuge. It's not what you do today. You, oh. you took a whole different career. You are a video producer for East Coast Event Group, which is one of the, the largest event companies there are. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so East Coast Event Group is a very prominent uh, entertainment uh, photo video company in the area, serving Bucks County, Montgomery County, uh, as well as the other areas. Um, they've been in business for over 40 years. Uh, I, you know... Still in the event world, but uh, yeah, you can find them, all their socials on their website as well, uh, www.eastcoasteventgroup.com. Vince, thank you so much thank for coming you, in and, and sharing so this. I recommend anybody just go to the website, www.rentthefuge.com. The history of the venue is on there, plus pictures of all the venues. Take a look. You'll want to book it. Awesome. Thanks for Let's me. take a break. To become a sponsor of our show and promote your business or event on every single podcast platform, 
including Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music, in addition to WWDB Talk Radio every Tuesday at 6 p.m. evening drive time. Email us today at diningonadime at yahoo.com for our very low rates. And we're back. Amorous Pollock, introduce your fabulous guest. So I want to introduce Daniellicious Dishes to everyone who is listening. Um, her real name is Danielle Davis, and she wrote the Healthy Swaps cookbook. So thank you, Danielle, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So... I was reading up on you, and you said that you learned to cook alongside your parents. Yes, yes. They both um, love cooking and instilled that in me and all my brothers. And that, you know, was a domino effect into when you got older. You started, obviously, cooking. You know, you have some. You have a child. I can hear, I think, some, one <laughs> yes, of them in the background. <laughs> Yes, I have my newborn, and I am sorry about that. He was not supposed to be awake right now, but... <laughs> oh, no, no, it's fine. It's uh, You know what? It just adds to the fact that, it, you know, we're, you're live on air with us, and, you know, you have somebody who's so, so cute next to you. So um, <laughs> why don't you tell us, our listeners, what um, got you into the Healthy Swaps cookbook? Uh, well, creating the Healthy Swaps. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, like you said, you know, from a young age, I've always had a passion um, for cooking. But as I got older, I also, you know, really started to care more about my health um, and just using food and to feel good. Um, and I learned, you know, dieting is frustrating um, and was never sustainable for me. Um, I tried the gamuts of lots of different diets. Um, but I realized that just using the right ingredients um, through simple swaps, Making all of my dishes a little more nutritious was really the key for me to maintaining a healthy lifestyle and still getting to eat food I love. Exactly. Now, one of the things, and I mean, I, I <laughs> going through your Instagram account, like some of the photo, and even your blog site, um, some of the photos that you have up there, it just was making me drool. And I love the fact <laughs> that you have the recipes up there for everybody to, you know, utilize. Um, and I know one of the big swaps that, you know, people use to make something creamy is uh, the Greek yogurt, which has, yep. yeah, it's nutrient rich, has probiotics and, you know, healthy fats. So what would be something else that you would incorporate to, you know, that would be common for you for some of your recipes? In terms of healthy swaps? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So some of the big ones, I mean, Greek yogurt is like by far my favorite. Just I think it's such a miracle ingredient um, and you can use it in so many applications, whether it's baking or making sauces um, in the cookbook. I, I, I use it, you know, in dressings, um, my banana bread, all that good stuff. Um, but I also, I love using um, unrefined sugars like coconut sugar, honey, maple syrup, those types of things. I have a whole chapter dedicated to using those types of sweeteners. Um, you still get a delicious baked good or even savory dishes, but they have way more nutritional value and they're easy for your body to digest. Um, I also, I love using oats um, in a lot of different applications. So obviously you can grind it up and use it as a flour, but it also can work as um, a binder for things like meatballs. Um, they're in my little mini meatloaf. Um, it's just an easy way to add fiber and nutrients and you don't even taste it. 
Um, so I love that one as well. Now, I also saw that you have, uh, I think it's a protein bite of some sort. Uh, and I know as a new mom, you probably also did that so that you could have the energy. But I believe yeah. it was like peanut butter and banana, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So is it from the website or the cookbook? I don't know if it's in, in the cookbook or the website. I think it's in the cookbook, too. Okay. So um, it's actually chickpeas. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. Yes. I use chickpeas. Um, and it takes it like a cookie dough. It, it has like this really like beautiful buttery texture and it takes on flavors really well. So you can use it in a sweet application um, and you don't even taste that it's chickpeas at all. Oh, wow. That's that, you know, and that's like the big thing is people don't understand. And I feel like your your book, The Healthy Swaps Cookbook is going to introduce people to a, like a different world of being like no you can have that nutritional value and swap out and make it healthier and it's not that scary word of healthy food equates to something that tastes bad so your whole entire book you know is is describing food or giving people recipes of foods that taste amazing and also incorporate the healthy aspect of it so um, <clears throat> how did you be- come around to like building it or, you know, how many, <laughs> how many recipes <laughs> did your, your husband have to, to taste test on behalf of uh, this cookbook? He tasted a lot. He was a very willing um, participant in the taste testing. Um, so it took, gosh, it took about six or seven months to, to get through all the recipes um, you know, make sure they're tested and tested a few times. And really when I was thinking of recipes, I was just thinking of foods that I love to eat, you know, like Chinese takeout, um, cheesecake, um, that decadent delicious food that we all love. Um, and then finding ways to lighten it up without sacrificing any of the flavor. And, and I think that's wonderful. So is there any particular recipe that you find is your go-to that you, you know, hands down, like, I'm running, I'm running low on energy or time. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to put this together really fast. Yeah. Probably my favorite and my husband loves it too, is my Buffalo chicken pasta bake. Um, we love Buffalo chicken. Um, we're suckers for, you know, any sort of Buffalo chicken recipe. Uh, and it, it uses that Greek yogurt, my favorite swap. Um, and it, it comes together super easy. It kind of, I don't know if you guys have ever had Buffalo chicken dip. Oh Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like the go-to party dip. It, it's basically like that in like a healthy pasta dinner. And it goes great with red wine. I noticed you're a yeah. fan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm very, very key now that I, you know, I'm no longer pregnant. I, I'm all about the red wine. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's another thing that you incorporate in your book is uh, cocktails or drinks, you know, or adult beverages, if you will. Um, yes. So... I saw one that seemed very interesting, and it was in popsicle form. Yes. So that one, um, it's my Berry Gin Gimlet Popsicles. Uh, It actually, so it uses fresh fruit um, and no refined sugar, and that's why it's a lot better for you. Um, A little gin, so, you know, add (laughs) a little boozy goodness, which is perfect for for adult summering. and yeah, it, it creates a really delicious pop with all natural ingredients that taste delicious. 
and you know and that is definitely i'm sorry there's some stuff going on in the background so if you hear me giggling it's because there was something that was going on in studio um okay. i was like i hope it's not my son no He's no no very <laughs> no it, you know what and he needs nutrients too so he's 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 you know on mom's track uh, what would be, and speaking of, what would be, a, you know, a child-friendly recipe that you could swap out and, you know, just incorporate veggies and, like, hide it in the recipe? Yeah, so actually, my I have a two-year-old son as well, and he is at daycare. Um, but a great one, um, two, two ones that we've actually talked about. I love the buffalo chicken bake because I do hide um, a bunch of veggies in there, and they're just cut up really small, so you can't detect them, but obviously you still get them. Um, the chickpea cookie dough bites because it does taste like a cookie, um, but it has those ch- chickpeas in it. Um, I'm trying to, oh, and there is a chicken tender recipe that is delicious, um, and it actually it uses almonds and almond flour, so it's gluten free, but it's so crispy and delicious like chicken tenders that kids love. So those are some of like the go-to recipes I make my son. And then, you know, and I'm sure he he adores the fact that you know he has those grabbable things that that you know, taste good, although he doesn't know how good they are for him. <laughs> exactly. There's actually a granola bar recipe that's great, too, because granola bars, I feel like it's such a kid snack, but they're not always as healthy as you think. A lot of times they're packed with, like, processed ingredients or tons of sugar. So I have a granola bar that's all natural ingredients, super easy to make, and my son loves them. So I think he's a picky eater, so kid approved. <laughs> And, you know, and that's, it's great. And one of the other things is, is it's hot outside and, you know, I'm sure that you, obviously you're not going to give your, your son the, the gin part of the gimlet, um, but <laughs> I'm sure you can create that popsicle where it's, you know, a, a virgin popsicle. So, you know, without the gin for your son. Absolutely. And I also have a three ingredient ice cream in the cookbook that's made with just bananas and fresh strawberries and a little bit of almond milk so that one's great for kids for summertime you know danielle she spoke like that obviously never had a teething child before having had teething <laughs> child there's nothing wrong with a little alcohol <laughs> 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 yeah, the might do the trick to be honest <laughs> um so i know that through some of our our own private conversations you had wanted to focus a little bit about some of the summer or you know like the summer lighter fare swaps that that you're incorporating in I think your blog or a new book that you might be writing um so actually it says yeah on the blog some recipes that will be um coming very very soon um to the blog but one that I actually was working on today was a BLT avocado toast. Ooh. Um, I'm a sucker for avocado toast, and I love using, like, fresh produce. Um, so there's all those beautiful fresh tomatoes right now. Um, so that should be coming to the blog very, very soon, as long as my son cooperates and gives me some good, <laughs> some good stretches of sleep. <laughs> um, and I also have some um, vegan cheesecake, uh, I'm sorry, vegan s'mores tarts coming to the blog soon so I'm really excited for some of those fresh you know recipes I feel like s'mores are just quintessential summer so I always gotta do a s'mores recipe in the summer um and yeah they're they're coming to the blog um and then the last one is a peach and burrata grilled pizza so that one I'm very very excited about and I think you know using like 
cooking techniques like grilling is so fun during the summer um especially when you don't want to turn your oven on i don't know where you guys are but here in the midwest it is very hot (laughs) um so thank you for joining our show and thank you you know i want everybody to hurry out and not only look up your blog site but also buy your book the healthy swaps cookbook um now where can they find you online yeah, so you can find me on Instagram um, at Dannylicious Dishes. Um, my website is DannyliciousDishes.com. Um, and you can find the new Happy Swaps cookbook at Amazon um, or other like major retailers. Thank you so much, Danielle, for joining us. Um, Thank you, Danielle. We'll be Thank r- you so much for having me. We'll be right back. Tune in to Dining on a Dime to hear from Gene Blum, our chef, educator, consultant, and historian. You can find him across social media at ibfoodie2 or Gene Blum at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. And you can also tune in to listen to Amaris Pollock and find her across social media at arpollockus at gmail.com. And we're back, Chef Gene. Introduce your fantastic guest. Well, at this time, I'd love to introduce a New Jersey-born Canadian-American author, sinologist, and philosopher. And if you're like me, a study of human culture, I had to look up sinologist today, and I found out that it was the study of Chinese culture and history, which made it even better. So our guest today... Edward Slingerland is author of an outstanding book called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. One of the compelling things that I took from this was a quote that said, to understand why people drink is to tap into the very core of the human experience. So welcome, Edward. Thank you for being with us on Food Farms and Chefs. And my opening question to you is very simple. Does booze make us human? It makes us better humans, for sure. It makes us uh, civilized humans. So the argument in drunk is that even though we've been told that our taste for alcohol is a kind of evolutionary mistake, and even the existence of alcohol is kind of a mistake, it's a byproduct of um, agriculture. So we had agriculture, and then we would leave grain sitting around, and eventually we noticed that it would ferment. <clears throat> That's what we've been told. So in that story... Um, it's an accident. It's not really central to what made us civilized or the, the beginnings of civilization. But as I point out in the book, it's, it's actually, first of all, directly responsible for civilization in the sense that archaeologists now believe that it was our desire to get drunk that got hunter-gatherers to start settling down and focusing on domesticating plants. And so uh, this is a so-called beer before bread hypothesis. So we were we were going for better beer, and then we happened to notice that grains could also make food. Um, so in that sense, it, it directly motivated us to settle down in agricultural communities. And then once we were there, once we were starting civilization, it has a lot of powers over the human mind that allow us to be more creative, uh, more accommodating to other people, more cooperative, more trusting. And so it was a kind of, it not only inspired us to settle down, but then became a catalyst for allowing us to cooperate and innovate more effectively. Well, you actually make the point that 
intoxication is a powerful force for trust and love. And, mm-hmm. and I really, you know, thought about that for a long period of time. And it, it really is such a vital thing to development of, you know, trust factor, but in relationships of all types. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what this experience has done for, you know, not only the community, but for the growth of technology, for, you know, the growth of, of higher civilizations like we like to think we are today? Yeah, so as I argue, we're, we're kind of a strange species because we're primates. So biologically, you know, we're related to chimpanzees, bonobos. But we cooperate on this crazy scale that looks a lot more like social insects. So I'm, I'm talking to you from downtown Vancouver right now. And when I look out my window, it looks like an ant colony more than a primate community. So we cooperate on this massive scale. We're constantly having to cooperate with strangers. We're constantly having to trust strangers and we're, we're constantly having to, and we're working in teams, um, you know, let down our guard, uh, say things that might make us look stupid or might give someone else an advantage over us. So we have this problem of how you get suspicious, basically suspicious primates to, to be more relaxed and open. And, and part of my argument is alcohol is a tool that allows us to do that. So it, um, one, one thing alcohol does is, is downregulate or turn down a few notches the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that's in charge of self-control and self-monitoring and rationality and all these things that are really good, but that can get in the way of, for instance, creativity and trust. And, and while it's doing that, it's also simultaneously ramping up endorphins and serotonins, making us feel better about ourselves and also making us feel better about the people we're with. And, and the combination of these two things is, is a very powerful way to get people to, to get past cooperation dilemmas and, and to collaborate more effectively. Um, I, I have to agree with that 100% because I use alcohol in aspects of you know, writing, it opens up my mind creatively. And, you know, if I have a writer's block, it helps me. Yeah, yeah, it helps me write and get past the writer's block. Absolutely. So we were talking about this before the show, right? I I had written several versions of the book proposal. And I I had a block because I my agent quite rightly noted that it was boring. (laughs) She was like, you know, it's everything's there. The arguments were there. The science was there. The history but there, it just was missing something. It, it wasn't popping. And, and I realized that I had not taken my own advice in the book. I hadn't written any of it while drunk. And so I was, I was actually on a business trip. This was pre-COVID. And at a hotel, about to go out and meet colleagues for dinner. But I went down to the hotel bar with my laptop and ordered a Negroni. And at 1.2 Negronis, so a couple sips into my second Negroni, what's now the first couple pages of the book just appeared to me. And, and the experience was really like taking dictation. I had the feeling of that I was not writing this. Some other, some, someone else was writing it and I was just taking it down. So when we get to these, and you know, I, I talk in the book about how Google uses it this way. So when engineering teams run into a roadblock, instead of sitting there at the computer and like trying to pound their way through it, they go to their whiskey room. And they all pour themselves a little bit of whiskey. They sit in beanbag chairs. They start chatting, and they often come up with a solution to the problem in a way much in a much faster way, and often a much more creative solution than they would have come up with if they had stayed at their desks. 
So it's a really crucial tool for uh, getting us past these these roadblocks when what we need is lateral creativity. We need some kind of insight solution. If I go back in my career, 30 plus years, I worked for corporate America restaurant industry and I was in Dallas, Texas for a training. And one of the things that they did right off the bat for all young managers is take us out drinking on a regular basis. And that yeah. was an evaluation tool. And many times after that, you know, one or two evenings out, you were let go from the management team. And years back, when I look, you know, in, in reflection, it was always the individuals who were not partaking that were let go. Mm -hmm. Those of us that were part and would have a couple drinks and enjoy it then showed up in the morning were the ones who, you know, really moved through the career ranks. And for some reason, you know, Carlson companies back then knew that and, and, and was aware of that and, and you know, used that as a tool. Really yeah, that thing. point that points to the two sides of this. I mean, what I argue is that m many, if not all, of the advantages of alcohol often have this a downside that comes with them. So, you know, people use alcohol in these social situations to get a sense of you know what another person's really like. Um, I, I compare it to the same way we shake hands to show that we're not carrying a weapon. We sit down and we drink together and we're, we're basically taking our prefrontal cortex out and putting it on the table and saying, look, I am not armed cognitively. Uh, you know, I can't lie effectively. I'm what I'm saying is really what I'm thinking. It's a very effective tool for getting past people's defenses and getting a real sense of who they are as a person. Um, but the downside of that is, you know, what if you don't drink for perfectly valid reasons? You know, you're a recovering alcoholic, you're Muslim. Or, or I think a very common situation, um, you're a woman who doesn't feel comfortable hanging out with a bunch of dudes at the bar after work <laughs> drinking. So, you know, it's in the book, I talk about how we've got to figure out in the modern world, you know, we societies have always known how to do these things, you know, banquets, using alcohol in various ways socially. We need to do a better job of figuring out how to unlock the those benefits of alcohol, which are real and they're really important. Um, while, you know, guarding against the downsides and trying to mitigate some of the unfairness or the risks that can come with, with using alcohol socially. Certainly that, you know, there, there are so many circumstances like that where people are intimidated to do that. Um, me personally in, in the hospitality industry, you know, it's a very tough industry. Uh, so you learn a lot about chefs and, you know, you when you interview them and you have a bourbon, you have a whiskey, I, I actually go to the point of watching what they order and how they order it because it tells me a lot of who they are in that whole, you know, realm mm -hmm. of, of, you know, tastes and flavors and things like that. One of the things, and, and obviously inspired by your Negronis at the bar, <laughs> yeah. when your publisher told you that, you know, it, it just wasn't clicking or whatever, Whatever happened at that bar was a great success because from the opening paragraph, you had me. I could not put it down. You know, it was just a great read because you bring into it so much personal experience. You bring into it, you know, real life discussion and, and you know, experiences, which you you make a compelling case but you also talk about the realities of it all. And, and, you know, for anybody listening, go out and get a copy of the book. And, you know, from opening paragraph on, you're going to be 
you know, drawn to this. Um, so a little bit about your background. You're a philosopher, you're a sinologist, you're a professor of philosophy. I talked about this in the beginning. You went from having a background in religious studies and you were professor of religious studies to writing a book about, you know, something that people will preach as the evil of society in some ways. Yeah, religions, I mean, that's a pretty modern, we have a, this kind of modern sense that religion and alcohol are opposed somehow. And it really comes from this uniquely North American experience, I think, of prohibition. Um, religions have been using alcohol and all sorts of other chemical intoxicants forever. And even if you think about Christianity, as I point out, um, you know, the central ritual in Christianity is based on wine. Right, the, the blood of Christ is wine. Um, as I discussed in the conclusion, the first miracle that Jesus performs, I thought it would be walking on water, raising Lazarus. It's turning water into wine. Um, so there's a there's a very uh, deep and tight relationship between chemical intoxicants and religion. So that was one avenue in from my previous training. I've also always been interested in this in the power of spontaneity. So how being in a state of spontaneity can help you solve problems, it can help you um, get along better with people, it can help you trust and be trusted. But there's a tension involved in that because if you know you want to be spontaneous to be successful, how do you try to be spontaneous? It seems like trying to be spontaneous is actually paradoxic, paradoxical. You can't do it. And it, it's true. It's, it's cognitively a, a paradox. And so I got also got interested in how cultures might use basically cultural technologies like alcohol as a way to get around that paradox. So I know that I need to be relaxed and funny in my date. I'm going on a first date with someone. Uh, if, I, if I try to be relaxed and funny and drink a lot of coffee and really focus on being relaxed and funny, I'm going to be horrible. I'm going to be really insufferably boring. Uh, if I sit down and have a glass of wine with them, as soon as that starts hitting my brain, it's going to start changing my brain in a way that makes it easier for me to be spontaneous. So I, I get interested in how alcohol can solve certain uh, tensions and paradoxes around how you get into a spontaneous state. Well, again, I recommend the book highly. Um, the book is titled Drunk, How We sip dance and stumbled our way to civilization you can find it on amazon you can find it on kindle edward is there other ways that people can follow you learn more about your uh other ventures i know you do ted talks you've spoken on power spontaneity um you do some very compelling talks a little bit of research really made me you know grab hold of that and say wow you know what a great speaker this would be uh how could people you know follow you and get hold of you and and uh Obviously, you know, everybody needs to go to Amazon and get a copy of the book or buy it for Kindle. Yeah, I have a I have a brand new website. So Edward, just my name, Edward Slayerland, one word dot com that has everything, all my my books, academic and non-academic and talks and interviews and things like that. And I'm also on Twitter um, at at Slayerland 20. It's my handle on Twitter. So, well, wonderful. Get me. Thank you for you know, calling in. I know we got a little bit of a time difference out there. It's been an absolute uh, fascinating time to have a few minutes with you. Uh, look forward to more of your books in the future. I'm hoping you're going to be writing some more because I, I think you really have a good format here of, 
you know, really educating the world in a way that we could all relate to. And again, the Great. book is titled Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Edward, thank you very much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Philly Restaurant Reviews with an S.com. Chef Gene tags. You can find me on social media at Gene Blum or IBFoodie2, or you can email me directly at IBFoodie2 at yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two, at yahoo.com. Amaris Pollock. You can find me across social media using my full name, Amaris Pollock or A.R. Pollockus. And you can email me directly if you want to be on the show at arpollockus at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. 